Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indie. Indie Game Business has one of the longest-running digital event series in the gaming industry with hundreds of publishers, investors, developers, and tech companies to meet with. All the sessions are always free to watch forever, and you can get a free pass to receive all the slide decks from all those speakers. The tickets for meetings start just at $50. Go to IndieGame.Business and use the code IGBPODCAST to get 20% off your ticket. What's up, everybody? My name's Indy, and that gentleman over there is Jay. And in the middle, we have Red Vonix from Cerulean and Drunk Robot, right? That's me. Uh, Drunk Robot Games. Drunk Robot Games, the drunk. drunkest of the drunk. robots. So what kind of drunk? Like vodka drunk or tequila drunk? Oh, we're very poisonous for the day. <laughs> we, we especially enjoy ethanol suspensions. Let's see. Um, that's, is that that's when the uh, for the day of, of what we can do to get alcohol in our system faster? Is ethanol suspension like when it's layered and then you burn it? Or I don't. That's when you have a jello shot. Ah, you slurp them down as fast as you can and see what happens. Give it about five minutes and the party starts. I'll give you a piece of advice on that. When you make jello shots with Everclear, it doesn't set right and it just sits on top of it. Don't ask how I know that. So, Indy, um, yes, sir. Let me tell you about my week. Okay. On Friday, so we've got the the next. I'm going to call it a virtual conference. I think when I call it an online conference, people think it's just about online games. So we're going to call it the virtual conference. Our next event is is next week, and so you know we're constantly going out there and saying, "Hey, look, you know, check it out." Get a ticket. It's the easiest way to network in the industry, find you a publisher or find you a developer or, or talk about your tech or whatever, because it's all online. You don't have to travel. You just like literally get a ticket, log in, and you can see everybody who you see everyone to meet with. Right, right. And then, you, then you use a video call. And so it's, it's super, super easy. So I had this brilliant plan on Friday afternoon. And I mean, it was like Friday night. It wasn't even Friday afternoon. I said, I'm going to take our list of publishers. we got like 500 or 600 publishers that we track. I said, and I'm going to offer it to anyone on LinkedIn who wants it for free. Just send me your email address. I'll email it to you. And I'm like, it's Friday night. It's LinkedIn. Nobody goes to LinkedIn on the weekends. So, this, you know, hopefully this will do something. It did. It went <laughs> freaking viral. Um, so... As of right now, we are, oh, we might've actually hit it. Let's see. We are just about to hit 100,000 views of that post. Holy crap. And Over 9,000. Yeah. 99, right now it is at 99,060 views. And we've had around 800 people request this list. So basically all I've been doing all week is copying email addresses and sending out this list to everyone. So 
it's been good, but I never in a million years would have expected this kind of, of response to it. So to charge five bucks for it. I charged five bucks for it. Nobody would have bought it. <laughs> nobody would have got it if you went. I don't want to pay five. I mean, oh, you could have charged that... a dollar. Well, <laughs> that's true. There, there are people who you know didn't even want to send an email address. I'm like, your email address is not worth this list. Okay, all right, that's that's fine. Whatever. Um, and I had another you know brain along brain fart along those lines, and I completely forgot what it is because this is all I've been doing all week. Um, so did Brent, you get people to sign up for the meet to match? I don't even know yet. I mean, we're at allowed fifty companies. We've right. got a lot of developers. I want to get some more publishers in there, but um, I'm still in the process. I bet you I've still got 600 emails to send out to, you know, get this list to everybody. So You're supposed to automate that stuff. I'm working on it. That's, <laughs> I bet. You know, that's, it's not quite as easy as it sounds, you know, especially when you weren't ready for it in the first place. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So red, Sorry, you know, Red actually has the list, you know, so that's a that's a good thing. And Red's going to be at our event next week as well. Um, let's. I mean, we've got a, a ridiculously interesting topic to go about today, and and you know what we can learn from theme parks and apply to game design. But let's start where we always start. Red, tell us how you got into the industry, because that's always you know interesting. And walk us through your career up to this point, because you've been doing this a long time, like we have. I have, and I'm usually busy, which why if you look behind me, you see the fantastic unpacked mess of my office. That's because I'm always busy, though. But it's getting there. One box a month or so. <laughs> How did I get into games? Well, you know, my dad actually used to make games back in the Stone Age of the 70s. Uh, he worked for a company called Microfun. Made, he actually uh, made the very first Jigsaw puzzle game ever, which he got into magazines and everything for that. So as I grew up, because I was born 79, so yes, I'm a 70s flower child. So Whatever. Pick your flower. Hey, all right. Fla flower Brothers. Um, so growing up through the 80s, you know, I was kind of there for the golden age of games and going to see the rise and fall with uh, Atari and Nintendo and a little ColecoVision and all that. Uh, grew up with a Commodore and uh, an Apple and an Atari computer. So I really grew up with a history of playing games. And I wanted to actually be either an actor or a musician when I was younger. Um, and then eventually, you know, I just kind of got obsessed with games, put on some nice healthy gamer weight from just playing <laughs> games all the time. And I, you know, I just kind of fell into wanting to just make games because I realized I could be an actor and I could be a magician and I can have stress every day of my life. And it was fantastic. And so I kind of jumped in there, got my first uh, unpaying job like most people do. Um, they laid people off, started my first studio, ran into the ground, started my second studio, Surlean Games, which is still around, started my uh, third company, Drunk Robot Games, to make my own original titles, and then you asked me to be on your show, and here we are. So here we are. So I'm going to guess at the reason that you have two companies, but I want to expand on that one a little bit to you know, explain. I'm guessing Drunk Robot, like you said, does the original IP, and the first game, is that where you do work for hire? 
That's exactly. Yep. See, and that's important. I mean, because it's, it's it, it differentiates yourself and you don't get a lot of confusion from publishers. Exactly. Very good. But you, but you have not succeeded in running your second great company into the ground yet. And I know I'm still working on that. I'm, I'm with you. I ran my first one into the ground and this is the second one. And it's, I just, oddly enough, as I checked LinkedIn the other day, we've been going for nine years now. So congratulations. Um, all right. So I'm very excited about, you know, probably just sitting back and listening to this. Talk to us about theme parks and, how you look at them and then bring them to, you know, bring what they do to games. I mean, aside from like roller, roller coaster tycoon type stuff. So there's actually quite a lot to this topic, probably way more than we can discuss in a, how long is this? An hour? <laughs> hour, hour and a half. When I run out of coffee, you know, that sort of thing. Well, we might need to extend this by a couple of days. So, Disney is always actually a very, very good company to look at when it comes to theme park design. Um, but the, a lot of things they've done are things that a lot of other companies, uh, you know, Universal, uh, Six Flags, all of them have kind of learned from and and taken from for their own. So a lot of the stuff I'm going to discuss here are things, even if you haven't been to a Disney park, I'm going to refer to the Disney parks a lot. But even if you haven't been to one, you've probably seen a lot of these things in other parks. But just to kind of start off with one of the main items, uh, and this is a phrase that I actually read about on a single blog that I was never able to find again. So I might have made this up, but it still worked <laughs> very well. Um, it's called a winnie. And I don't mean dapu, I mean a winnie, where the concept of a winnie is a large set piece item that draws your attention and it's a focal point for the scene which in disney parks like magic kingdom this would be the castle at epcot this would be spaceship earth at that big old golf ball there um in animal kingdom it's the tree and so forth and so forth and the concept is with all of these parks uh as walt disney originally designed it you walk through the entrance gate where you, you, know, you give your ticket, you buy your ticket or give them your ticket or scan your badge or sneak through, however you want to do it. And you don't see the Winnie yet, but you pass through that and now you see it because in the context of those parks, the gate you pass through is the equivalent of the curtains rise, rising at the start of a show. And then the first thing you see in the show is the central set piece that you're drawn to. Now that can be brought to games in so many ways. I mean, I played so many games where it starts and you're immediately just dropped into everything. And it always feels a little disjointed and disconnected because there's like no introduction to what's going on to the gameplay or anything like that. So the concept of a Winnie for games can be quite a number of things. I mean, it, it can be quite literally a background set piece that, let's say, you're in an environment. And I, and I seem to recall God of War, the God of War titles did this very well, where there's something in the background and that, you know, story, thematic-wise, that is what you're being led to. You can see it. And as you travel through the environment, you're always getting closer to it back there because, you know, that's the goal. 
Um, in other ways, though, you could also almost look at this in some ways like your tutorial area, because, you know, as, as most designers focus on these days, they don't try and make a tutorial an actual tutorial, because if you sit there and just drone on for hours with text boxes, you're going to you're going to hit that five minute rule and you're going to lose all your players, which I've actually been told in some in some cases, the 30 second rule. So come out. This, this is so you just hit on something that is, is key to what we do here. Explain what that five minute rule and 30 minute, 30 second to 30 minute rule. Oh my God, if you sent me a 30 minute tutorial, I'll strangle you. Uh, I've seen them. I've, I've seen them. I have too, but no. So, you know, and it's one of the things that, that's central here is don't assume we know what you're talking about. Explain it, explain it to me like a five-year-old. So tell us what that five-minute, 30-second rule is. Well, when a man and a woman fall in love. (laughs) (laughs) That's my 30-second rule. Not, you know. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, my my God. It lasts for 30 seconds? (laughs) um, Well, kind of extending from that, the main concept with the 30-second the rule, five-minute rule, whatever you want to call it, it's basically how long you have to uh, sort of close the deal with your with the player. Um, this is how long you have to really entice them, get them to keep playing. The average gamer will play your game for five minutes, and they'll take those five minutes figuring out do they want to continue playing this, especially if it's a large-scale game. Like if you have a you know, 30-, 40-hour game, you probably have less than five minutes to hook that person in. During that time, if all you're doing is text boxes, you're probably going to bore them. So I guess the main thing here you need to keep in mind with that rule is how do you get the player to want to keep playing past 30 seconds slash five minutes? Because if they don't, they're going to turn it off, probably not play the game again, and there's a high chance they will remember that the next time your company or your brand releases another title. So you basically have 30 seconds to five minutes to not lose a player forever. And since negative uh, feedback sells way more than positive, that they're the ones who are going to be talking about it. Excellent. All right, so now now carry on from where I completely derailed you. Okay, where was I? <laughs> on the five-minute um, rule. <laughs> all right, so we're talking about the Winnies, and, you know, of course, you have the physical set pieces that you're being led to, but in a lot of ways also, you could say that it's also um, the, the, the gameplay itself is also and should also be a Winnie in many ways. You know, you're leading up to a gameplay element through other pieces. Like I'll, I'll take an example right from a game that, that I'm working on, a potato tale where we start you off, you know, with your initial set of abilities. Uh, and as we kind of get through the beginning here, of the game, we're slowly teaching them to you and sort of leading up to the climax. We have to use a lot of them together to defeat a large boss. And that's sort of our introduction. And because of the way we built it, we have very, very few people actually away from it because we continue to climb this interest ramp and get through the that five minute rule and our introduction to our game is about 15 minutes uh because of story and introduction and all that and we get most most players staying it through the whole 15 minutes and then asking if they can pre-order the game so we've definitely done something right there and so really that's just an example of 
you know, the Winnie that it's a thing you're heading towards, but it's also a gameplay element. So I think when it comes to games, it's good to combine both of those. Since in the real world, you see the Winnie, but then you're also headed towards it. And in many ways, those Winnies in the real world do have a, uh, for lack of a better word, mechanic. <laughs> in Disney parks, especially more recently, they tend to put restaurants in them. In Epcot Center, uh, the, the Spaceship Earth has a ride in it. So you can almost look at that as your equivalent of a mechanic that you're leading towards and guiding people to. I see we got lots of conversation going on. Let's let's see if there's anybody we need to respond to here real quick. No, Tyler's asking, you know, is it a plot of freemium or premium as well? Absolutely both. And in freemium, you have way less time. Um, premium is where I would definitely say you got 30 seconds or less, uh, especially with the general uh, feel a lot of gamers have towards freemium games is they look at them like cheap junk or not real gamers play them, which I don't agree with that. I say if you play if you play a game and you have fun, you're a gamer. There's really no. And there are more mobile gamers than there are any other type of gamer in the yeah. world. I was at an event a while ago. Uh, this had been like 2006, and they were talking about some metrics. I believe it was PopCap actually, and they were talking about how they kept hearing, "Oh, uh, what was it?" They're talking about how they were being told, oh, mothers aren't gamers. Mothers just playing our PopCap games aren't gamers. Thing is, when they actually went into the metrics, the very individuals that, that were being discussed were actually playing games three times as much as the real gamers yeah. on their consoles. So take what you will from that. Everybody's a gamer who just plays games is really what it comes down to. And when it comes to those freemium games, because they need to hook you and they need to hook you fast as their, uh, their, I can't remember the word. You're all staring at me. You're scaring me. (laughs) (laughs) Their profits, there's the word, their profits are all based on actions performed within the game rather than purchasing the game. So they need to also hook you and get you interested in continuing to play, but get you interested to continue to play in a way that you're going to want to spend money to expand what you do in it. So that is an extremely long-winded way of saying, yeah, both. <laughs> so the follow-up question is, would the data size of the game, 5 to 50 gigabyte, increase or decrease the 30-second slash 5-minute rule due to time spent downloading and installing? I personally would say that's inconsequential, the the download size. Um, I I think a lot of people do look at the download size and say that the size of the download also should affect the size of the gameplay. But I don't personally have numbers on that, but I, I would personally, personally, personally have to say probably not because I believe a lot of people are gonna just start their download, walk away, come back when it's done, if it took a while, they might be like, oh, it took so long. Why it takes so long, daddy? But then they'll start playing and forget about the download time. So then you go right back to 30 seconds, five minutes. I would agree. I mean, that's the way I am with all this stuff. The only thing that irritates me is when I go buy a, you know, a physical copy of a game and get it, get it home and, and drop it in the PlayStation or the Xbox. And then it's like, okay, it's going to take six hours to, you know, <laughs> download and install. And I'm like, what the, 
I'll just play Plants vs. Zombies then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But at that point, they've already got your 60 bucks. So do you really want to drive back to GameStop and, and, and drop it off? So there's your day patches the entire game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. So aside from the, the winnies, what else should we be looking for in, you know, in these theme parks? I mean, there's so many different things that these parks do and they're all, I mean, and it's an interesting analogy because, you know, you look at user acquisition, it's pretty much the same, you know, they have to convince you to go to the theme park the same way that, you know, we have to convince you to download or buy a game and then, you know, retention because the longer they can keep you in that park, the more stuff that you're going to buy. And, you know, the same holds true. So, you know, what else have you noticed that that we should look at that we should take away from some of these some of these theme parks? Just to rattle through a few topics, and we can uh, come back to any of these, <clears throat> go into some more detail. I mean, one of them is definitely uh, mechanics, and in theme parks, you can look at stuff you can do as the equivalent of mechanics. You know, sort of like I mentioned about. Epcot, uh, uh, Spaceship Earth having the ride inside of it, that was a mechanic to go towards. The more things your game has to, to do that are unique gives the player more reason to stay within it, or if it's a premium, premium title, to you know want to spend money to have more accessibility within those mechanics, things like that. Um, another one is definitely uh, environmental storytelling which in theme parks, especially Disney, they do a fantastic job of through a combination of just plain old visuals. Uh, oh, sorry, I just got a message just now that our musician for Potato, uh, Brent, Brent of Floss Black, just sent me a new song. So thanks, Brent. I'm going to listen to that after this. <laughs> now I'm all excited. Um, but actually, leading just from there, you know, talking about environmental storytelling, it's kind of a perfect timing because the environmental storytelling they do in parks is in many ways multi-tiered because you, of course, have the visuals that, that you can see and experience. Uh, there's a lot of times things you can touch. Uh, there's, uh, at least in Disney parks, there's things you can smell. They have these devices called smellitzers. Literally, that's what they're called, smellitzers. And if you look for a little metal grate about yay big, uh, kind of hidden around place in the park, and you get up close and get a good whiff, you're going to get a strong smell of whatever it is they're, they're sending to that part of the park. So they're hitting that sense as well. And of course, uh, sound and music will all be things that they're doing there. And now pretty much all of this, minus smells, we can bring into games. Now, they actually did try and bring smells into games for the longest time. The devices. They did. I remember that. And I was like, this oh, is the God. worst idea ever. I thought it was the best <laughs> idea. What? I was so excited for those. And every time they bring it back, Yes, finally! And then it doesn't come out, and I'm like, will you live in the worst future? You really want to smell Doom Ultimate? I want to I want to smell the rip and tear. I want to rip and tear and smell it. <laughs> there might be some kicking, but I want... <laughs> uh, you, you can have that one, Red. Uh, that was one technology that I was kind of glad never caught on. The smell it it For the hentai games, especially. Oh, my God. So, I mean, I know my brother worked at Disney World when he, when we were in college. And so I do know that they, he told me that they have those little grates. Like when you're walking down Main Street and you smell the bakery, you're not smelling the bakery. You're smelling, you know, 
<laughs> what they're piping out right there to get you to come in. I mean, and, and those are, I don't know, if you want to call them lures. I'm not sure exactly what the, you know, gameplay equivalent would be, but it's, it's a, a tool or a mechanic that gets you to try something new. It's immersion. And a good game immerses you and brings you into it. Um, in a very unique way, I would say a game that actually did immersion very well has always been the Civ games, because I think every single person I've ever spoken to, including myself, who ever played a Civilization for the first time said, oh yeah, I sat down and started playing at 6 p.m. And when I stopped, it was, oh God, it's 7 a.m.? I didn't even, t- I didn't even take a break. I thought it was just an hour. And... Part of that is also immersion because you get sucked into it so deep. You basically forget these other things and Disney parks and universal now too, with things like the, the Harry Potter uh, wizarding world, uh, they do a fantastic job of making you forget about the outside world. And games are just like theme parks. They're entertainment. They're, they're meant to make you forget about the outside world and enjoy, you know, being somewhere else, doing something different, being someone different for a period of time. And anything you can do to immerse the player is very, very good. So who would you point to if we start looking at environmental storytelling, for one? Who do you see in the industry who is just dead on great at doing that uh, i'll probably get some slack for this but valve uh valve hasn't made a game in like a decade and a half and they're still one of the best from the ones they did <laughs> back in the day uh the left for dead games and both portal one and portal two i still think to this day have some of the best environmental storytelling i mean left for dead never once gives you a single piece of story-related dialogue. The dialogue is all, kill that, oh God, I'm dying. But all of the actual story is within the environment, within the sounds, within what you're experiencing. So, and all of that is exactly what theme parks do. And I'd just like to see more games kind of take that idea. I, I always looked at Bethesda, you know, especially like, the fallout fallout four and and even 76 where you're right you're not sitting there reading you know a tome of knowledge but if you want to get engaged with it and you go and you check out all of the uh the computer terminals and you start reading that stuff you know that's very engaging or you look and you see you know two skeletons in a certain position or in the middle of something or you know you can look at that and immediately say oh okay this is what was going on here you know that <laughs> that type of stuff and it's a, they did a great job for sure that's it, it's an art in and of its you know self and so it, it, i agree with you it, it is it's very important the other company that comes to mind when you're talking about the theme park analogy and it's ironic being as there's a level in Overwatch that is literally a Blizzard theme park is, you know, the, the stuff that uh, Blizzard does. I mean, with the World of Warcraft, you know, when we're talking about different ways of engaging your customers, you know, that game got so big that 
it's not all people who want to go and be the server first at knocking down a raid. You know, it's a, there's a Pokemon game in it. You know, there are all kinds of little challenges with your weekly objectives and, and lots of different things. And you can go and you can collect outfits. They did a great job of putting a lot of, of breadcrumbs out there for a lot of different types of player you know, to go and, and and enjoy themselves. And so that that's another one in my mind that, you know, has that mentality of we're gonna put you in this world and you're not gonna want to come out because there's always something there's always something to do. You know, with those I would almost personally call as less environmental storytelling and more to the previous item I had mentioned where it was uh the mechanics to keep you in there, like in theme parks, it's the things to do. But yeah, definitely. Still. That's what I was going for. I just you know forgot to link it back to the last to the last comment. But all right, so let's talk about some of the games that that you've done and how you implement this sort of stuff, you know, specifically. And you talked a little bit about the winnies, but you know, for indie developers who have you know limited resources and limited you know people, you know, time and, and everything else. How can they implement some of this stuff effectively, but also, you know, economically? So it's definitely something that can really be done on any budget in any scale. But and I think that's the main thing. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Don't, don't try and build a gigantic, multi-tiered, you know, triple A castle in the background of a side project game that you're being led to. You know, but. Pick something thematic that still works with your game. I mean, there's a game I produced a while back with a buddy, with a couple buddies of mine called Santa Special Delivery, where the, the goal was it was a, a simple old school arcade game where you play as Santa delivering gifts to children and then crapping down the chimneys, the really bad one. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, nice indeed. So... With that, we kind of have this little introduction, and this may be a, a weak representation of trying to say these, but when you start the game, before we even start playing the game, before you even get into the actual uh, gameplay or introduction cinematic itself, which is a short little simple cinematic, um, we have this set piece of Santa Claus standing on top of a house being all kind of heroic, the, the, the hero pose with snow flying around him. And he goes in Mega Man style teleport in and Mega Man style teleport out. And in many ways for this game, the title screen was a set piece because everything is right there. In fact, when you start the game, the camera actually starts panning to the right for the introduction. But we, we never really leave this environment. So we have that. Um, a better example would probably be the game we're on now, Potato Tail, as in the introduction, which for those of you who played it, you probably haven't seen this yet, but because this is an element that wasn't in the previous demos. Uh, but this is because we haven't gotten to it yet. But it will be in our upcoming demo here. You get to play in about a month and a half. At the end, we have this boss you have to fight. And in much of the level, this introduction area, you're being led towards this boss. And 
you actually do see this boss in the background. So we actually have this moving Winnie that as you go through this collapsing, burning castle, you see the boss pop up in the background, kind of leading you in the direction you're supposed to be going and showing you that it's very responsible for a lot of the destruction going on. So we have this moving Winnie that you're always trying to sort of not not get to initially, but it, you see it's what you're is guiding you in a lot of ways, almost subconsciously, until you get to it, and then there it is, and oh crap, I gotta fight. So how much of this should you give away, like you said, like on the title screen, and how much of it should you wait for the player to discover? Because I mean, personally, I always like, I, I want to see what I'm going to build towards. So, you know, I like those games that like completely put me in control and you get to see all the abilities and all the powers. And then they basically find some way to take it away or flashback or whatever. And so, you know what you're in for. And it's a, it's a dynamic that gets really dicey when we're talking about that five second, 30, you know, <laughs> five minute, 30 second rule. How much do you give them up front and how do you effectively show them, you know, this is how badass you're going to be in the end? Well, on that title screen, and again, this is going to depend on the scale of your game. If you look at something like Kingdom Hearts, their title screens, I felt, were always fantastic because they give you an initial flavor of how the game is going to feel. And a lot of times they do these sketches and concept art items and things like that. Um, but then when you get into the game, they kind of give you this initial introduction that makes you want to keep going because each piece of it introduces something that's going to happen next. And then each piece of that introduces something that's going to happen next. So it's just a wonderful way of kind of hooking you forward and constantly hooking you and hooking you and dragging you forward like that. Um, and much smaller games, on the other hand, you know, you you have much less time to hook the player. So you can't really just grab on with one hook while you're pulling them with another, you know, preparing the next or pulling them with the previous. Uh, and, and when I say hooks, you know, this could be story-based, this could be mechanics. Um, preferably it's a bit of both if you're designing a solid game. But for a short game, you know, it helps a little more to maybe show more on the title screen and within your flavor like if you're developing a let's just say like a match three might not hurt to show something related to that in your title screen um and i'm not saying just i'm not saying just play a video of pieces matching and stuff on your title screen but if you can somehow mix visuals of that in with what's going on and then even with your loading screens and such you know you're kind of giving the player a taste of what's what they're going to be getting into which gives them a good indicator of, you know, do I want to keep playing this or not? And perfectly, you know, so they do want to keep playing. You know, that's the secret. You want them to keep playing. <laughs> the, the big secret of, of all game development, you want to keep them, you want to keep them playing. But I mean, and, and it's why we've seen, you know, obviously on the free to play side, it's very important to keep them playing and keep them you know, mm -hmm. retain those players, but it's also, you know, very important now on the 
premium game side, but just while we've seen such a rise in post-launch content and live ops and all of these things that we see today, you can't just, I'm going to make a game and you put it out and you stick it on the store and then you move on to the next game. If you don't have a plan for supporting any type of game you're creating post-launch, you're, you know, putting yourself way behind the eight ball on that one. Absolutely. And, and that's something that I think that any developer can do of any scale, because I mean, you've built your game, you know how to build it, you know how to continue building it. And if you've done what you should be doing and constructed a solid set of tools, there's no reason you couldn't continue to build on it. And, uh, you know, of course, don't make sure you're not suffering sequelitis or anything, but build hooks into your product. Um, I mean, again, I'm going to talk potato tail just because that's my my big focus right now with my company. Talk all you um, want about your game. That that's part of the reason we're here. <laughs> well, good. I can then. <laughs> um, so in a potato tail, you know, we're we're not assuming there's going to be a sequel or a series or anything. I mean, yeah, the thing is built to be a IP with a long life of different products. So to be prepared for that. We have a bullet point item list for the story of a sequel game, and we have uh, hooks. I shouldn't say hooks, we have rings in the game that if a sequel ever occurs, those bullet points hook into those hooks to allow it to exist. But on top of that, we do also have, I believe it's uh, three DLC items that we're going to release that expand the game. Two of them take place during the game that... You know, happen anytime within the timeline of the single game. The third one w- would be something that would be released between the first and sequel if we get to a sequel to sort of bridge the gap and lead things forward. And the plenty of those took very little time. You know, we're talking an hour here. Um, will we ever make them? Hmm, d- depends the uh, the sales and the actual public reaction to the title. But the point is. We're ready. We know what we're going to build, and there's literally no reason somebody can't. And I know a lot of developers out there right now going, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You gotta make it focus on your main game right now. You can't... Well, you know what? Go fuck yourself, because the truth is... uh, It doesn't take long to just be prepared. You know, again, an hour here, an hour there. You're you're sitting on the toilet, you're drinking a coffee or something, your, your, your local, you know, our bucks, whatever. <laughs> um, just brainstorm, take down a few notes. And then if your game does well and you're like, oh crap, I got to release a DLC. What are we doing? Ah, I'm ready. And you've already prepared for it within your title. I uh, mechanics are going to expand, story you're going to expand something. And if you look at the Disney parks and other parks, they do the same thing in various different ways. I mean, you know, Disney World, a hundred bajillion miles of so they can pretty much build for the next 12 decades uh new theme parks and everything um within that space i mean they, they've got their dlc long <laughs> since prepared so they've mastered live ops <laughs> so yeah that, that's my two cents of angering other game developers but I don't know of, look, I can't ever remember a developer talking to me about their game when they didn't have far too many ideas to actually put in a single game. I mean, there oh, was, you're fortunate. 
I've had so many people tell me uh, never focus on, never put any time into a sequel because your game's probably going to. I'm like, well, yeah, most games do fail, but what if it doesn't? Well, I mean, that was true 15 years ago. You know, yeah. I mean, there was a very real reason for that to, to hold water. You know, you can't, you know, by the time you shipped your gold master and you sent it to the publisher to be, you know, duplicated and, and put in boxes and all that sort of stuff, you kind of had to have a little idea of what you wanted to do for, you know, a, God, what were those called? Not sequels. Um and they weren't called DLC. I completely blanked. Expansion packs. Expansion packs. That's it. Yes. You know, you had to have a little idea of what you wanted to do, but you couldn't necessarily go ahead and start putting resources on it because you didn't know how well the original game was going to sell. And we knew for a fact expansions generally sold a third of the number of the original game. And so you kind of had to walk a very fine line there and, and, you know, do I start putting resources into the expansion pack or the sequel, or do I start on something new because this is going to fail? That's not the case anymore though. You know, you, you look at things like uh, no man's sky, for example. And, you know, I just read an article yesterday where they started talking about why they didn't talk after the, you know, first game came out or when, after the game initially launched. And, there's so much that you can do as a developer to recover from a lackluster launch now that you absolutely need to be planning for this in some way, shape, or form. You know, not only does, you know, constant news keep things going on your Steam page and wherever your game is, and, and even in the, you know, the more mainstream press, but it keeps your current players engaged and when they're engaged they'll talk more about your game or their friends will see that you're playing it on steam or epic or whatever you're watching it on so you know i can see that argument 15 years ago but now it makes absolutely no sense to not be thinking about this and planning and, and i'll tell you from the business side if you walk into a meeting with a publisher and present the game, they're going to ask you what's your plan post-launch. And if you don't have one, that's going to be a big strike against you working with that publisher because they're going to invest money in marketing and they want to make sure they're going to get their return out of it. And, you know, having a game that has legs and that stays, you know, in, in the public eye longer increases that. Exactly, and I can definitely say for the, the pitches we've done for our uh, design document, everything for Potato, whenever we sent it to publishers or anything, for interested parties, marketing partners, et cetera, et cetera, there is an outline of the DLC there. And by outline, I mean like a paragraph for each one that just says what happens. That's pretty much it, and that's all you need. And this actually goes... Um, past video games as well i mean if you're working on a movie that could potentially be a franchise and you're pitching it to a studio again they're they're gonna want to know what are, what are your plans if this does well what's the sequel if or what's the the netflix series you're gonna pitch and if you're going to netflix they're gonna want to know it also what's your what's your you know four series four season plan or series for my british friends um in japan too i think i forget um you know, what are your plans um and, and yeah, it's, it's uh, everything you, you said, and I'm just agreeing. 
<laughs> so Jay Powell, everyone. Yeah, Yay. yeah well, the number sure. one thing was like, how do I make my game be successful? Um, make it entertaining. How do you do that? Yeah. Know what I mean? I mean, you've got to have things for people to do. You have you have to have things in there to keep them engaged and retained whether it's a, a premium game or a, a free-to-play game now obviously like you said i mean if we if we look at that 30 second slash five minute rule the five minute rule is along the lines of you know premium game where that 30 seconds is your yeah if somebody is not entertained within that period of time no matter what how good it looks or how whatever or however many mechanics or whatever they're just not going to play it if they're not entertained it's like with streaming people say well you know how do you be a successful streamer well you got to be entertaining why how do you do that i don't fucking know you know what i mean <laughs> you just you, you entertain people i don't know there's there's not really an answer there is an answer but it's not like some magical thing that you can explain you know what i mean yeah. exactly no two games can do it the same i mean every game is different you can't just copy what this game over here did into yours because most likely it's not going to work. You need to know what makes your title engaging and engrossing and how are you keeping people in your game, not their game. Right. And so all of this actually brings up a, another point that I hadn't thought about until like literally 30 seconds ago. You're not going to have a good idea of what is engaging and what's drawing these players to the winnies so unless you test it and yeah it talk i mean it, it goes back to any developer no matter what size needs to be play testing their game early on you know and that does not mean friends and family your friends and family will lie to you your mom says you're a great singer it doesn't mean you are you know but you know <laughs> Things like early access let you do that. You know, they had a, in the patch notes for Fallout 76 that came out earlier this week, you know, they talk about things that they're going to do in the next patch that are going to ease new players into the game and make it, you know, less daunting when they first come in. And quite frankly, that's something that could have been figured out if, if Bethesda had done an actual honest-to-God beta run of the game versus their two week the server sometimes up you know attempt at a, at a beta you know run but you're not going to guess or you know even with all the planning in the world you're not going to figure out that this is exactly how it needs to go you have to you know you have to beta test these things and and get it out there in the market or you know, go to a company that that focuses on you know building focus groups and building uh, beta test lists and, and that sort of stuff to make sure that all of this is going to mesh. And I mean, early access is perfect for this. Um, and quite frankly, streaming, Twitch, and YouTube and Mixer are great for this too. We used to spend a ton of money focus testing games where we would have a player playing the game and a camera in their face watching them so we could see where they were 
you know, having issues or, you know, what they liked and what they didn't like. And now we get that for free with streamers. So, you know, getting the game out there and finding these little points of, you know, frustration or, you know, what cookie crumb trail is working and what isn't is something that you have to test. You, you just simply can't plan for it. Absolutely. And just another item to that, um, something I've always found to be very useful. And first off, for anybody new watching, stayed in my office and still moving in a little bit out of here. I want to know what the um, fishbowl full of owls behind you is. Oh, yeah. I was curious those about are, that Those too. are kittens. It is a bouquet of kittens. It, okay. From thinkgeek.com. We, we... Now, actually, not a thing anymore, I don't think. But <laughs> no, they had to close that site because the only people that were going to GameStop anymore are the ones to buy Think Geek stuff. And then they stopped going there and they, you know, started ordering from the website. So GameStop said, aha, we'll fix you. Now yeah. you have to go to a GameStop. Go Bust ahead. it. Come get our used titles. So one of the things I've always found that has helped me a lot in this exact topic, and I don't mean Think Geek and GameStop, I mean uh, <laughs> game feedback are um events and i i don't mean the events you submit your game and then pray and pray and pray and they reject it um I, I would actually talk against those in a lot of ways but that's a whole other very controversial we'll get to another time um i mean like your your local comic-con for example what we showed potato tail once at denver comic-con we had you know, probably 100 200 people play it and what i would do is i just kind of stand back you know a good 10 feet and just observe. And by doing this, well, I should say do that. And then afterwards, a lot of times they'd come and talk to me about the game, what they liked, what they didn't like. And that combination of things gave me a lot of information about the title. In fact, one of the things, a really good example of how this actually worked very well for us is we had a bug that would only pop up at events. And it happened at three different events over the course of a year. And we could never figure it out. And it was rare. It maybe happened to like 15% of the players because, you know, in a potato tail, you get your characters and you connect them to form bridges and ramps and things like that. So we'd find that people would go to place a character and it would immediately pop, which is what happens when you return a character. And But for everybody else, they'd go to place and would place just fine. We're like, the hell? And we're trying, I'm trying to reproduce this. I'm getting other people trying. Nobody can reproduce it. It wasn't until about seven months later when I am at an event, actually at Denver Comic-Con, and I'm watching somebody play because I'm chatting with them also. So while I'm chatting with them, this happens. And I'm like, do that again. And I watch them, but I watch their hands in the controller, and I realize they're holding the button down instead of tapping it. The code that I wrote presumed you're going to tap it once to select it and tap it again to, to place it. And I think about it, and I go, that makes a lot of sense. So from that experience, when I went back to my office after the event, I built in the support. So now you can hold the button or tap it. The game tells you to, you know, what doesn't tell you, it just says press A, press A, because we're not going to bore you with tons of text. But by having that experience and being able to see the people actually playing the game, chat with them, and watch their hands in the controller, I knew, was able to see what was going on. And I built, I wouldn't call it a hidden mechanic, but an alternate way of doing the same thing to support that extra set of players. And as a result, nobody has had that happen since then. So, and, and that's one area where I see develop, developers kind of shoot themselves in the foot when they're at 
any kind of conference and they're showing it off. You get excited about it and you want to show the player how to play it. So they get engaged mm-hmm. quicker. You're step the fuck away, man. A disservice there. You know, you need to let the player figure it out and watch how they figure it out. Because if they can't figure it out, there's your problem. Exactly. And if they're not figuring it out, which so with potato, actually the very first time we showed the game, the because we thought we built a game that was very easy to understand. And we first showed it off very, very long uh, in somewhere, I forget where, um, literally nobody could figure the game out. <laughs> and, but by watching them, I could see where they were getting stuck. And that was our first indication of these, of fir- uh, this is our first indication that one, this game is actually way more complex to teach than we thought it was. And two, these are the things we need to have a good way of teaching the player. And now, from seeing all that, we've been able to make a demo that pretty much everybody can get through well, with us just standing back and drinking a beer, which is how it should be. But yeah, as Jay said, you're watching somebody play your game. Don't talk to them. Don't do anything. Pretend you're not there. Or pretend you're there, but you're but you know you're you're voyeurizing. You, you got your binoculars on and you're watching, going, oh shit, they're stuck there. Okay. Oh, that's what they're stuck on. How are they going to figure it out? Oh, they walked away. Oh, that's a really tough part. Then we got to fix that. But what you're going to get from that also is you're not testing that part of the game because chances are you have some focus demo or game introduction or something, but you're learning about a mechanic that you got to teach better or tweak or something. Sorry, I was just posting a link to your game so people can actually see what you're looking at. It's at drunkrobotgames.com. Yeah, and also potatotail.com. Let them both take you to the same. All right, so... Let's go back to what you said you don't recommend people doing. Oh, the the indie events? Yeah, why not? Uh, So, I know a lot of people love them. And usually they're the ones who got accepted and got a lot of connections from them. And, you know, I've, I've had my stuff accepted to some and rejected by the majority of them, but that's kind of the story for most people. But from being on both, from being on three sides of it, actually, because I volunteer at the event, so I've helped... Well, I wouldn't say to run them, but I've helped to set them up and tear them down. I've had my games at these events, and I've been rejected by numerous events. And from having all three perspectives, the thing I've seen with them is if you get accepted, sure, you're going to get a lot of people looking at it, but it's noisy, first off. It's really noisy. You have you and about 50 other games all competing for the audio space. So you definitely need a pair of headphones. But even with those headphones, you have people walking around that's playing your game and 40 to 50 others. How are you going to make the difference? And the the fact is, with that event, you're not. You maybe what you might get out of it is meeting people and being like, hey, why don't we go get dinner and talk about but those kind of connections you can also do without the event, because to get, even get into these events in the first place, you have to do the submission. And that submission can take a tremendous amount of time for an almost guaranteed rejection, because they get so many rejections. In fact, they get, I'm sorry, they get so many submissions. In fact, they get so many submissions, most of these events don't even have the time to review them all, so they have to rely on screenshots and videos, because they just don't have the time or manpower to do it. So, I mean, I don't want to just sit here and shit on these events, because I got friends who run them, and yeah, they do a fantastic job. The people get into them, do have a great time. But you know, if you have limited time, limited budget, if you do get in, you do still have to pay your way to get there and get a hotel room and all the costs, 
I usually tell people, you know, if, if you get into something, assume at least two to ten thousand dollars of additional, yeah. at least depending on the scale of the event. Um, in in many ways, again, this is depending on the size of your team, your capabilities, your budgets. Uh, I would almost suggest purchase booth space somewhere instead. Um, again, that's very much depending on your budget because that. Really but just talk to people. Oh my god! <laughs> just message people. Like you know, you're going to, to GDC or Tokyo Game Show. In fact, I'll be at TGS if anybody can be there. Come on and say hi. Just don't smack me in the face, or I'll smack back. Um, <laughs> but you know, contact people in advance. You know, there's a company you want to talk to. They're probably on LinkedIn, or they they got a guy on Twitter, or girl on they got a person, a human being, or a cat on Twitter. You just reach out to people and talk to them, set up meetings. You know, people love to talk at these events. That's why they go to them. I mean, don't just go and sell yourself. Don't just be like, I have this fantastic game. You should come play it because you and your readers and your audience are everywhere. No, just set up meetings and talk to people. And you're going to get so much out of that drunken, racist night. Racist word? I'm using it. Drunken racist night, then you probably will at some very difficult to navigate uh, awarded event. If I only, have an end to that statement. <laughs> if only there were a way or an event that you could join and you didn't have to worry about travel. I know, wouldn't that be amazing? The noise or any of that stuff you just mentioned. If, if we only had an event like that. <laughs> Why, Jay? Does such an event exist? Yes, it does! Wow! Go to IndieGame.Business and there you go. It's, we and make sure and fill out week. your Meet to Match profile. Make God, yes. Make sure you fill out your Meet to Match profile. But I mean, that's exactly what you just outlined is, you know, exactly why we started those events. So you know, what's the dates of the events again, Jay? The 17th and 18th of July. Well, that's a week most... after next, right? No, that's next week. Seven days from now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Seven yeah, days. Oh, God. We're, all, we're, we're almost halfway through July already. Um, Crap. But, you know, yeah. we do them every few months because you can sit down. You, you don't have to travel. You, you don't have to spend that two to ten grand. And quite frankly, if you're only spending two grand to go to a conference, you're doing very, very well. You know, if you're going to be at something, especially like GDC or anything in San Francisco, you're looking at five to 10 easily, you know, and you can go, you sign up, tickets are like a hundred bucks. You can share your, it's all video conference. So you have everybody's sole attention because that's the other thing. And this isn't just the indie events. This is any conference. There's always so much stuff going on around you that it's a challenge to keep that person focused on your game, even when they're standing there, because they're looking to see what's at the next booth or they're talking to somebody who just walked by, you know, you've got it. So you have that person's sole attention for half an hour, you know, at these events that we do. And if you want to show your game, it's all video screen. It's all video calls. So you just share your screen and you can play the game and talk about it at the same time. So yeah, that's exactly why we do these things. We have, we have a question. What are the most common traps involved in designing games, Red? So a lot of these are about, uh, sort of what I said there in the channel. I know not all of you are on the channel because some of you are probably watching YouTube or something or wherever it's get posted. Uh, 
some of the biggest things, some of the biggest traps to involve to, I cannot talk some of the biggest <laughs> traps to avoid. And when it comes to traps here, it's things that are you know, going to hurt your game, going to hurt sales, things like that. You know, f- first off, uh, the famous one that everybody always immediately goes to, and they should, is feature creep. Um, and the concept of feature creep is you, know, you, you design a platformer, and then you go, actually, no, let me say this differently. You design a, a 3D game, maybe a sequel to an existing franchise uh, about some nuclear guy, and you want to add in this cool feature because somebody else did it, and you add it in, but it extends your development cycle by about six months. And you know, you're, you're doing good with production, doing good with production. And, oh, my God, this, this game brought out this other really great feature. We should add this as well. And you just add another four months into your, your cycle, and you keep doing this until the company goes under and somebody else has to buy you up. And you know, about 12 years later, you release Duke Nukem 3D. So the, the trick is you really want to avoid a lot of feature creep. And I, I know I just shot on Duke Nukem, but honestly, I, I really enjoy... I'm, I'm at Duke Nukem Forever. I really enjoy Duke Nukem Forever. I'm, I'm probably like one of the five people that actually did. Uh, but that game was famous for having feature creep problems. Um, and this is definitely the, the big thing to avoid because... When it comes to games, this is business. You know, you eventually do need to release a title and make a profit on it. And no, not, not everybody does that. A lot of people kind of do this for fun. Um, and that's cool. Um, but for the rest of us, this is business. You know, you have deadlines for a reason. Um, now, now, I actually feature Creep Potato a good bit. Um, in my case, it was because, you know, we kept being unable to get funding for it. You know, we couldn't get the money we needed so why kept adding features i wanted and it's actually now a much larger game but in many ways the features kind of work for it. and that is a very rare example I say. um though i still have to test a lot so we'll see how that actually works in uh, play testing so you definitely want to avoid feature creep you know another one is is disconnected features and this is the, this would be like where you have gameplay element a and gameplay element b and they have so little to do with each other, they actually end up breaking the feel of your game entirely. So, like, let's say you have a game that you could teleport between two points through some mechanic where you might be able to look at something, click it, and teleport. Cool. Now, let's say you also add a mechanic where you have a uh, chain hook. You can latch into something and pull yourself towards it. Why? what's, What's the difference between these two? Um, so the, I guess that'd be an example of clashing features. Um, but, but yes, that, that's a big thing to, to avoid is disconnected and that. Um, another big one is just over design where, you know, you have spent seven months planning out the absolute best jump mechanic in the history of gaming. Awesome. Congratulations. Jumps are really fucking hard. <laughs> but uh isn't that like at least six and a half months you could have been spending designing and tweaking the rest of your game? Just saying. <laughs> Look, we got a bunch of questions up here. For sure. Well slap money. Alright, the next one is uh have you thought about demoing games in VR? No, oh, that's a, a tough one, a big one. I mean, yes, you should always demo games in VR. 
VR is tough though because on a consumer standpoint, virtual reality is still and this is this is rapidly changing, but in many ways virtual reality is still it has a high entry cost for consumers. Mm-hmm. And not all consumers want to buy some high-powered PC plus high-powered virtual reality equipment. Now, things like the Oculus, was the Oculus Go, I think, are changing that with it all built in with like a $300 price tag. And things like that are actually making it much more demoable because now you don't necessarily need to bring this massive mainframe computer that can run your VR in-production title to an event or to somewhere you can get people to test it. You can just bring a go, an Oculus Go, sit down you know, at your local coffee shop, and people are like, oh, my God, you have a VR headset? Can I try it? And, yeah, stuff like that. Now, the tricky thing, of course, is you can't hover, well, 10 foot away, hover and watch them play. In this case, you need to be recording what is happening through an in-game uh, recording system, basically. You need a video capture the games you can come back to it and watch that later but you kind of need to video capture and film them and be able to sync those timestamps if you want to get a real good sense of everything that's going on so it's a much harder thing to uh demo and to do not qa but you know just consumer testing on in general but yes absolutely still do it yeah when the day comes i'm sure when uh when you can just take your VR headset and just put it on and go, you know, like setting up an Oculus is a pain in the ass. That's like, you want to move it to another room. You're like, eh, but even though it only takes 10 minutes, but it's like, eh, you got to set it all up. And yeah. Well, I mean, spillmaker. Isn't there an extra amount of work that goes into, you know, if you're not creating a VR game, how much extra work is it to prepare your game to be played on VR? you know, versus the way, you know, you intended on playing it. So not a VR game, but you're trying to a VR game? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, so, I mean, that's what I took away from the question. You know, it, it, well, yeah, yeah, demoing a little games edit to his question. Are, yeah, d- demoing games that aren't VR games, but demoing them in a VR headset where you basically have, you can keep that user's attention because they basically have that's not what he meant. He says, uh, social VR apps like big screen VR allow you to stream your game on your desktop so that you can share the same virtual room with them as they play. Yeah. See, that's what I was talking about. Ah, <laughs> but I mean, how much, how much extra work is that to, to get things going on, on something like big screen VR? Yeah, I personally have not done a lot of work with that one myself, but from what I've seen of it, uh, I can't really speak to the work involved, but to the demoing, uh, it definitely makes your demo more multi-interactive in a lot of ways. So, you know, you could have people in, in queue to play your game and you have somebody, one or two people already in your game with this big screen going on. You could have the people in line already interacting with your title. Um in just some fashion. So there's definitely a, a lot of potential to that. Again, I haven't worked too much with that specifically myself, so I too much to it, but I, I would have to say from what I know of it, it yeah, I mean, use it. Fi- definitely find ways to use it to entertain people in line, playing it, and even people passing by if you're at a public place or a public demo of some kind. Yeah, exactly. Like our friend in the chat said, the busy conference issues. Yeah, you can use this to draw more people in. 
any new hook. But, you know, mm-hmm. like they point out, you know, you're not going to be able to get that same level of feedback in terms of seeing exactly where they are in the game and exactly what they're pressing, you know, or, or what their frustration is. And then also like at the conference, right. there's a lot of people that won't do it because they just think it's gross to put on a VR headset after a thousand strangers. <laughs> you know. What could I possibly very... go wrong? It's like... <laughs> I found it very interesting when I was at a Tokyo game last year and I had some friends running a VR um, and I passed by a bunch of other VR um, booths as well and i noticed all of them my friends everybody else they had these uh little covers that they would actually put on to the headset and it's actually the cover that then touches your face and they would dispose those so it's literally it's a disposable vr headset ring basically like you know those ones you have on the toilet when you go to a public restroom so it's basically a, a butt gasket but for your face it's, it's a vr condom exactly and since uh, everything is so super clean in Japan, if you haven't been, I've never been. Go, go. Um, go. fantastic. I've never been. <laughs> never be- oh, dude, we got a chat then. You should come. You should come visit us at Tokyo Game Show this year. So, um, yeah, that's a long yeah, way so- from where I am. <laughs> I'm in Colorado. So, anyway, um, yeah, it can get super disgusting, but make sure if, if you are showing something off, you uh, do what you can to make it less disgusting. I, so, sorry, I got distracted, you know, because I'm me. I said Japan. I mean, that happens. <laughs> All right. So we got time for one more, and then I have to get back to emailing this publisher list to all of LinkedIn, apparently. Um, <laughs> Spillmaker wants to know, should more small and medium indie devs think about business intelligence? To which I say, you know, wholeheartedly yes. But what, what do you think, Red? If you're not thinking about it, you're not doing business. Well, that's true. So how do you think about it? But what what do you do to make sure that you're staying on top of business intelligence for, you know, your original games and for, you know, any contract work that you may be getting as well? Oh, I mean, obviously go to events like uh, GDC, TGS, see what is interesting, what's coming, what's no longer happening. Then you get an idea of what directions you should be focusing on yourself. Um, for your own products, you know, again, just be showing it off, get feedback, listen to the people that don't like it, um, but also see what is similar in the market. Because no matter what you're making, 100% guaranteed there's something similar to it. There are so many people making games. Um, you just can't forget that. And a lot of times, you know, everybody wants to work together. So, befriend the people making similar games, not so you fight them or have frenemies or anything, but I mean, you're making similar titles. You obviously got similar interests. Who knows what you can collaborate on? Um, Really, it's just research and learning what people are doing, learning what people want to buy, what they don't want to buy. But at the same time, you also got to be careful because every time I go to GDC, which I go every year, I always look for what is the fad of the year. And it's usually whatever is ubiquitous throughout the entire show floor. So, like, um, I remember one year it was alternative virtual reality. And I say, I think I probably saw at least literally 15 different companies there. And I just walked around going, none of you are going to exist in the year. 
And what <laughs> happened? None of them existed in the air. We have Oculus, we have uh, Valves, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> well, you got PlayStation VR, are, but this, it's a different platform. PlayStation VR, yeah. Um, actually, PlayStation VR, to, to side note for a second, I think it's very interesting, because for the longest time, I think that was one of the only affordable ones for consumers, because a lot of consumers already had a PS4, and they could then go and buy a PSVR on top of that. They didn't have to buy a $2,000 computer that actually had the power to run a VR game. So, because that was very interesting for a period of time there. Um, so, so, yeah. Research. Learn what people want. Learn what people don't want. Try to catch an eye for what the fads are that everybody's going to be talking about and all excited about and aren't going to exist in a year. Because if you put your time in those fads, guess what you just wasted? Yeah. But if you can't tell the difference between a fad and the next big thing, you're, you're pushing a line. And no matter what you do, yes, you're going to be pushing a line regardless, but it's how risky, how thick is that line? <laughs> are you standing on a line that's pencil thin or it's got a good fall? And that just comes from experience and uh, experience. Yeah. And it, it isn't something you're going to get every single time and you're going to get it right because oh, so yeah, no. the flip side to everything, and you're right, but the flip side to all of that is if you're not willing to push the edge a little bit, you're going to miss out on things like, um, uh, we talk a lot about how Apple and Google like to feature games that highlight their new technology. So you have to be playing with it just enough to understand, okay, this is something that's going to be new and, you know, groundbreaking. And so we need to implement it because it, it ups our unique selling points and, and things that we can talk about in the marketing. But you know, like you said, it's it's one of those things that you have to you have to be doing this long enough to realize, okay, you know, this is this is not going to take off. I mean, the my the example in my mind that I always go back to is, I don't know, when did Amazon come out with their phone that, that lasted about a year? You know, I said the Fire Phone or whatever it was, like twenty twelve or something. Yeah, I, I sat in a suite at casual connect with the Amazon reps and the guy holds the phone up and he goes, this is groundbreaking because if you tilt the phone, you can see more of the map. And I, I was just like, seriously, this is what you think is going to catch on. You know, the, how many games are going to be able to use that? And you're expecting a totally new mechanic to be implemented in basically every game that you put on this isn't going to fly this, but they were so proud of it. You know, they're like, this is going to be the next stage of game development. And obviously it wasn't because I mean, how many of you have a fire phone? So you have to have a little bit of, you know, knowledge of what works in the past and what worked in the future and what actually might take off. It's a fine line to walk. I mean, the other side of it is, if you sit down and you have this, you know, almost like a tunnel vision of what's working in the market based on what you see in, you know, the top selling steam and, and, and everything else, the reason we have more space shooters now and more, you know, strategy games that are coming out and this whole genre of, you know, 
games that that I call it the Playway games because they're the publisher that puts it out. Like car mechanic simulator and PC building simulator. And fifteen years ago, that game would have gotten laughed out of every single meeting you took it to. But now, because they you know have looked at the market and they see what people are playing and they see what people like, there's a whole market for these types of games because it was underserved for so many years. So, you know, it's like everything else in this industry. There's no like clear cut answer. I mean, you're, you're right. You can't be, you know, you can't go after every crazy tech fad that comes out or, you know, every kind of, of new mechanic that pops up. But at the same time, you can't ignore them either. You know, it's, it's a very fine, challenging line to walk. It really is. And I kind of have a sense right now of what the current fad item is. It's going to die out. I'm not going to say it. No, you can't tease that. No, 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 no. Well, I'm going to say, you know, people listening, you know, ping me on Twitter at Red Vonix, R-E-D-V-O-N-I-X. Tell me <laughs> what you think it is. Um, I'll actually create a, uh, well, no, I'm not going to create a poll. Not yet. I want to hear what you all think it is. And then I'll create a poll. And based on what y'all think, because over the past four or five years, I've actually had a history of correctly guessing what the fad is going to be. Um, and anybody who knows me probably knows what I'm thinking of. Um, I'm not going to say it, but you know, in, in the past, it was um, an overabundance of new VR headsets. Um, VR was the fad they're trying to get, which VR is unique because it is coming still. And it's sort of here. Is, is it a Nintendo Switch Mini? No, I actually want that personally. Twitter. I looked at I'm like, who the hell is the audience for this? Oh, it's me, right? Yeah. That's it. <laughs> I'll make my bet. I travel a lot, and so I always take my Switch with me. And you know, I've never thought the Switch was large, but it was always something to carry. And I'm like, okay, well, well here's one that I can leave the Switch at home with my and so she can play, and I can have this with me, and it takes a little less space. I'm like, you know, it actually kind of makes sense to me. So I'm, I'm going to get one just for a lot of my travel. Personally, I would rather have a Switch that was a little bit life. bigger. You know what I'm I mean? Uh, personally, I would rather have a Switch that the screen was a little bit bigger. They have that. It's called I, TV. <laughs> uh, sitting on a plane with a little TV and subscription games <laughs> So I just I just tossed my um, my guess out in chat, and I'm putting money on you know subscription game services as the next big fad that we're already seeing a little bit that is going to fail tremendously. And Utomic's been around for a while. Yeah. I don't know how 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 successful it is, or exactly, but it has been around for quite a bit. Am I am I in the ballpark of what you were thinking, Red? Oh, I thought we might have lost you there for a second. You were being so still. <laughs> no, that's my poker face. Ah, ha, 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 ha. That's what you were thinking. You, you, you were too quiet about it. Um, but yeah, y'all. If, if you've heard me on this rant before, you already know the answer to this. But unless you have compelling original titles and content for your subscription service, you're you're barking up the wrong tree. That's the problem with Utomic. And then you know. They like to say, you know, there's the subscription services and then there's like the streaming services. To me, they're all one big batch. You're paying a monthly fee and you're getting access to a whole lot of different content. But 
Utomic has no original content. Well, the thing that they have that is different is they have proprietary software where you're downloading a game, but after like 30 seconds of it downloading, you can start playing it. That that proprietary software has been around for at least five years. They're not the only ones with that. And that's not a big enough differential. You're right, it isn't, because that would be awesome if Steam had that kind of software. But Steam has a different model. They're right. not, you know, they, they want you to purchase, they're the retail store of the world. You know, there's all these companies out there, and, you know, I talk to a lot of them, I get contacted by a lot of them, so... You know, if you can sit down with a piece of paper right now and write down 12 of them that you may know, I can guarantee you there's another 12, if not 24, that are, you know, in some kind of, you know, formulative stage. But if if you don't have, if you're going out there and just saying, pay a fee and you get access to all these games, uh, unless you've got something that you have that absolutely no one else has, in terms of a game, not in terms of, you know, your game where you can play it 30 seconds sooner, you're not going to get traction. And, you know, and, and that's the way, you know, Xbox, you know, has it with their stuff. Pay a fee to get uh, access to buy these games. Well, I mean, like the Microsoft Game Pass, whatever, you pay $9 and you get access to even their day one launches, you know, I pay for EA like $6 or whatever, because I get access to a whole bunch of games that I wouldn't normally buy, but I can't get them anywhere else either. So, you know, that's what we're going to see, you know, kind of filter out a lot of these services is if you don't have that original content that puts you different from everybody else, you're you're not going to make it. I don't think Google Stadia is going to make it. Personally, the one I always liked was Humble Bundle Monthly, because a lot of the games that were a little bit older, but since I'm usually so busy, I don't get a chance to really like stay up on the games. So what I liked about that is I got a lot of like a, a good mix of the unknown titles mixed with the AAA titles and everything in between for like 12 bucks a month. And it was just a really good selection. And, and yeah, I got a lot of games I didn't want. So I actually would get, gift them to people on my Discord. <laughs> I, I put down potato trivia in the potato Discord thing. And people got it right, got a free game key for something. I just had no interest in playing. But, but yeah, but that was always personally the one I always liked. And I still like to have a subscription to. And see, I never, I'm the same way. I haven't subscribed to Humble Bundle simply because... I don't have enough time to play all the games that come out. And by the time I do get around to playing something, it's usually offered up for free on something else that I'm, I'm already a member of. If, if the greater internet wants my request for the great new technology, give me some sort of launcher. I don't care if it's discord, steam, Epic, something new that lets me search all the stores, all the streaming you know, sites to find a game. Like, if you have a Roku for your TV, it does that. I can go and type... Turbo Play, that's new? Whatever Humble show it is. And they'll tell me if if it's available for free on a subscription service. Yeah, somebody mentioned Turbo Play there. They're they're actually... Turbo Play's uh, in the chat. What's up? Hey, Turbo Play, welcome to the party. (laughs) <laughs> all right so you know yeah we're over but whatever let's go um let's see what turbo play is 
I'm, yeah, I'm not familiar with Turbo Play, so I'm going to check it out. Me either, so let's have a look at it. Redefining video game distribution. Now I'm curious, what is different? Peer-to-peer -peer video game marketplace. So is it like theme sharing or like I have a game and I sell it to somebody? The, the way I understand it is... Uh... You go in there and you play games, and you like sort of earn tokens, and the tokens turn to money that developers can get. So you can buy other games and stuff with the tokens, and uh, like you can sort of green light with tokens and stuff, but it turns into real money for developers, something like that. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been actually pretty interested in them. I've been following them for a while here. So definitely, so I definitely would say that's not one of the failing ones I made. The one turbo token yeah, is one. Well, don't just kiss up to him because he's here. <laughs> All right, so Turbo Play, what original content do you have that's going to make me play your service versus somebody else's that has the same games? And now we all watch the chat. Yeah. <laughs> now we all pay attention. Calm down. So, do I pay? is it a subscription or is it, am I buying a game and then earning my money back the more I play it? You, you earn money by playing games. Okay. But how do I get access? Is the service free or do I subscribe? How do I get access to the games to play them? I guess we should read this for the people that are in, in, you know, yeah. Uh, he says, um, you can cash out or put towards games you want to buy. One turbo dollar, one turbo is worth a dollar. It's free. You buy the games like on Steam. There's no subscription. Okay, so I pay for the game outright. I own it. But then I actually earn money back based on how long I play the game. That's new. I haven't seen that before. So um, Turbo Play on your website at the bottom, there's like your Twitter link. That link doesn't work, FYI. <laughs> and neither does your Facebook. Oops. Does the LinkedIn work? The LinkedIn works. Yep. Oh, you changed the handles? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is it I like, a, is it, is it like a, a client that you download? Or do you just like download games from the site or... And, and Div's got a question. So if I spend $30 on a game, how long do I have to play to earn $30? Here we are asking all the hard questions yeah. you know, in, in the live chat. <laughs> when you show up to our show, be expected <laughs> to get grilled if, you, if, you're, if you're new. Well, it's sort of like it's, well, if maybe, it's live, you got somebody in the audience. Yeah. Maybe what you can do is... Um, you can, <laughs> Maybe you could come on the show. Talk yeah, about it. have your biz dev person reach out. Yeah, we will um, grill the hell out of you, and and, uh, and, and and we can you know put put their feet to the fire on on the show because that is you know I like this. That's new. You know that's something no one else has done. Now whether it will take off or not just depends on you know how the market reacts to it i, I think but, there's been some places where like you play and then maybe you get like bitcoins or something like that there's been a couple have there 
I mean, yeah. I know you've got Robot Cash that's coming out with their store that everything is blockchained and, and you can resell your games and, and, and things like that. Um, but no, I mean, that's interesting. If, if I can buy a game and then earn that money back, then... Except yeah. you can't cash those tokens out for real life currency. Well, I mean, and my concern is that it would be one of those that you pay $30 for it, but you had to put 300 or 400 hours into it to, to earn a dollar. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, hey, we don't know yet. Chances are they may not know yet because that's one of the things that has to be play tested. You know, do people get fed up or is it a good, a good grind or, or how does it work? Um, but yeah. So anyway, um, Red, thank you so much for, for coming on. You can find us on our Discord. If you go to discord.gg slash indie game business, uh, check out indie game dot business. If you'd like to find out more about the show, you know, where to get the podcast, the YouTube links to all these archives and about our event, the next one of which is coming up next week where, you know, you spend like a little bit of money, hundred bucks and you can pitch your game to all kinds of publishers. And if you can't spend a hundred bucks on it, send me a message. I may have a discount code for you. Do we have a, uh, is it me, exclamation mark meet to match? I don't know what the code is we put in for that. I have no idea. But if you go to indie game, if you go to the site, it, it will tell you. Indie the game thing dot is, business. Which have, you know, I figured out that has been very popular this week is if you want our list of over 500 publishers in the industry, go to indiegame.business or you can go to www.powellgroupconsulting.com and do it. There's no W to W on the indie game business one though. Indie. Oh. Well, that still takes you oh, to power. Group. Still works. I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. That's how technical I am folks. Five um, days, five days, not seven, five days. What? That's what the, the timer says. Five days, five hours, 32 minutes. Oh, hmm. All right. The timer's wrong. Don't listen to the timer. <laughs> <laughs> we have seven days. I'll update that. Um, don't know where we don't know where we had that. So hackers. Yeah. It was a hacker. No. no, there was something, and this is my fault. At the end of the day, there was something and some disconnect that happened somewhere in the last three months, where I think the show may have been originally scheduled for the fifteenth and sixteenth, and then maybe in my head I moved it to the seventeenth and eighteenth. Right. And we had Eventbrite showing one date, and when people were logging in to meet the match, it was showing a different date, and so. <laughs> This is kind of like clerks. I assure you, we are open on the 17th and 18th. We need to distribute a little cardboard sign to all attendees. Yeah, all right. With that, thank you for the follow. follow, Turbo Play. Yeah. And yeah, that's it. All right. Thank you guys so much. You guys seem wicked rad. Oh, you're from Boston. (laughs) I just wicked rad. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the follow, Red. Yeah, thanks. Oh, th- thank you. I mean, or you're welcome. Oh, or, from Canada. Yeah. All right, let's play some music. Get out of here. Thank you, guys, for we'll hanging out. Click Friday. the follow button if you haven't. Do you want to talk about uh, where these are posted here, the uh, podcast, Jay, before we get out of here? Uh, go to anchor.fm slash indie game business. Yeah. Anchor.fm slash Indie Game Business. Peace out, everybody.
Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at IndieGame.Business.